to Pastor's Prophecy Hour, your midweek installment of the Greater Life Church podcast. I'm Landon, and I'm here again with Pastor Andrew to talk about this next episode. Pastor Andrew, what are we going to be talking about in this episode? Well, this episode, we're going to take a turn and we're going to begin to explore the book of Revelation. It's an apocalyptic book, so we're going to include a PDF download of a timeline of Revelation in this episode. But also, I'm really excited because my brother Styles is going to join with me and give us some background from the author, the where it was written, why it was written, when it was written, and then we're going to talk about why it's important. It's going to be an awesome episode. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. All right. Let's get into it. Thanks. We're going to start with this. A couple of things that came to my attention, and we're going to kind of navigate that by looking at something called Agenda 21. Agenda 21. Basically, what we're going to go over tonight in the beginning of our session is more signs of the end times. So, Agenda 21 was a document that was rolled out by the UN. It has been rewritten as of late, but all of the Agenda 21 goals and efforts and, and things are still in place. And the goal, the timeline for Agenda 21 to be accomplished upon the earth is 2030. Uh, help me out. What year are we in right now? 2022. So in eight years, the UN has set a goal that they, have a, they are going to accomplish these things. Let's go through some of them. First of all, these are headers and these are goals. These are, it's a list. First of all, overcoming confrontation. Overcoming confrontation speaks to the, uh, quote, Unilateral policy actions continue to endanger the functioning of an open multilateral trading system. Let me tell you what that means. Independent countries and governments are getting in the way of the new world order. Now, they said it in a fancy way, unilateral, multilateral, and all these things. But basically, if these nations that are sovereign would just stop being sovereign, we could actually do these things. The second thing that they have a goal to accomplish is erasing borders, erasing borders. The end goal is to have a predictable, quote, public administration that can only be accomplished with, again, nations choosing not to be sovereign, but being a part of the global community. These words sound so nice and warm and fuzzy, but when when it boils down to it, it is a hostile takeover. Thirdly, they talk about a changed lifestyle. If you remember, it wasn't that long ago we were talking about the World Economic Forum and some of their goals. And what the leader of the World Economic Forum, Charles Schwab, said, quote, you will own nothing and be happy. So the changed lifestyle simply means that we find ourselves in a new position. People, humanity, find ourselves in a new position that it isn't not only not about us anymore, but we also own nothing that has our name on it. So anything and everything that we have is given to us by the government. I read today that in California, of course it's California, California passed a law or is in the process of, I don't think it's done yet, But they have begun the process of passing a law to give transgender people a, what is it called, where they give everybody the money, universal income. No matter what they make, no matter how much their net worth is, in California, transgender people will not have access to universal income. In other words, they get a check every month for uh, considering themselves to be a part of that community. That's California. Number four, rational water use. Again, Agenda 21 by the UN, it's online, you can look it up, you can read it for yourself. Rational water use, 40 liters a day. For the Americans in the room, that's 10.5 gallons. In order for you to have rational water use, you must only use 10.5 gallons a day. A shower of five minutes is 25 gallons. We're, we're, We're beginning to see some problems here. I don't know how fast you shower, but I know 
that you can't take one in 10.5 gallons. And if you do, you can't drink any more water that day. So you better drink the water as it's coming out and just hope that it's enough. Guys, this is a document put out by the UN. And a lot of the language that they use is that if just humanity can all just use the same amount of resources and we can get rid of the upper class and middle class, bring everybody here. Number five, Earth's carrying capacity. This one right here is going to blow you away. Earth's carrying capacity. Quote, new concepts of wealth and prosperity which allow higher standards of living through changed lifestyles and are less dependent on Earth's finite resources and more in harmony with Earth's carrying capacity. Let me translate. If people would just stop eating, drinking, and living, we would be in a much better place. Earth's carrying capacity, as studied by Washington University, is said to be, let's guess, how many of you guys, how many of you guys are going to guess Earth's carrying capacity? Just give me, give me a number. How many of you guys know how many's in the Earth now? Seven billion-ish. So how many's the Earth carrying capacity? Five hundred million. Five billion. So they did a study. Five hundred million is the floor, and that's ideal. But they said one to three billion is where the Earth's carrying capacity needs to be. They are doing, want to do things to kill huh, half the world. Number six, you would think number six would be the worst one, and maybe it is, I don't know. Transportation. Forget privately owned vehicles. They don't exist anymore in 2030. It's the goal. As a matter of fact, in California, again, California will ban the sale of gasoline cars in just 13 years. Germany has also set that as a goal. Great Britain plans to do so in eight years. No more gasoline cars in Great Britain in eight years. Washington State, of course, <laughs> this week, Washington State. So that Coupe de Ville that you got in the 70s, don't be driving through these places. You will get pulled over anyway. The goal is, in order to make transportation work, they have to do this number seven thing, which is called human settlements. What's, a, what's another way to say human settlement? City, right? Metropolitan area. So, Here's the idea, though. If you own nothing and you're happy, then you've got to live in a human settlement, which means you don't own any property, but here's, a, here's an apartment that we give you. Here's a bus ticket that we give you. Here's a universal basic income that we give you. You see how that progresses? Dependency burdens. Dependency burdens number eight. There's 10 things here. This speaks of the treatment of the elderly and the children. Dependency burdens. If you're too dependent, then you don't really need to be a part of society. Who are the most dependent in our society? Elderly? Children. As a matter of fact, in Maryland, Senate Bill 669, it would amend the state's fetal murder manslaughter statute to prevent any form, quote, of investigation or penalty for a person experiencing a miscarriage or a perinatal death related to a failure to act or stillbirth. What that means is, this, this is not in the context of a botched abortion. Abortionists have already been caught more than a few times in the past allowing babies born alive to die. This law would prohibit investigations of any case where a baby died after birth as a result of neglect. Making matters worse, the term perinatal simply means newborn, and it is not clearly defined. A man named Wesley J. Smith points out in the National Review that the baby's first month would be under this characterization. And what that effectively decriminalizes is death by neglect in the first 28 days of life cannot be investigated. In other words, explained the American Center for Law and Justice, a baby born alive and, and well could be abandoned, left to starve, freeze to death, or anything else, and nothing could be done to punish the people that participated in that death. So Maryland has moved the needle from, from partial birth abortion to abortion at birth or to all of these things to 28 days out. And not only doctors, but parents and anybody else can just say, I ain't taking care of this kid anymore for 28 days. 
And the way the UN says it is dependency burdens. The measure of a society is how they treat their elderly and their children. The ninth thing is data collection. I joked with you a couple of weeks ago about my phone and how I held on to the old phone because it was the fingerprint thing and it had a button. And then I got the new phone and it asked me if I want to put my face in it. And I said, man, that's convenient. Let's do it. So now Apple has my face. I don't understand why they would want my face. But they've got my face, they've got my fingerprint, and most of you are in the same boat. Data collection goes beyond your personal information to now the data collection goals of the UN is that there is no privacy, no privacy and nowhere to hide. It speaks to data collection in every resource. They want to know where the water is. They want to know where the forest is. They want to know where the farms are. They want to know where everything is that makes human life sustainable. Why? Because when the switch is flipped off and you haven't taken the mark, you cannot have anything. You already don't own land. You already don't know, can't get to water. They already have all of the data. You see how this is happening. The tenth and vital thing is called implementation. Implementation. Implementation will be carried out by and large by NGOs. NGOs stands for non-governmental organizations. In a recent study, the Red Cross declared that climate change is a bigger threat than COVID and should be confronted with the same urgency. One of the things they found during the lockdowns is that the carbon footprint of humanity went down. So, can you see the progression to say if we can make the carbon footprint go down by locking everybody in their houses for a year, then why don't we just do it again to make it go down indefinitely? See how that happens? And these organizations, the Red, I mean, it's the Red Cross. What do they care? You know what the Red Cross is? It's an NGO. It's a non-governmental organization. Let me give you another one. It's called the World Health Organization. It's another NGO. One of the things that we've witnessed firsthand is that, well, the experts said, the, the, they said, they said, they said, and then you have governments just falling in the line and doing whatever they said, right? We're on the back end far enough to realize that they got it more wrong than they got it right. One final point, and then Stiles is going to come and bring us some teaching. A big part of the end time is the control of food supply. Today, Bill Gates, y'all heard of him? Bill Gates is the number one private owner of American farmland. Why? Because he is not just one of the quote-unquote pioneers, but forerunners of genetically modified food. Now, these other initiatives are laid at this man's feet under the guise of helping humanity, if you dig not that long, you can find him saying some pretty terrible things. Like, if we just do a good job on the vaccines, then half of the world will die. And they let him say it, didn't say nothing to him. In essence, what this is, is Bill Gates and others like him have taken on this authority, have taken on this responsibility, have somehow convinced themselves that they are bigger than God, and it's the sin of humanism, and it's the sin of pride that says, if we do things our way, then the end of the world will not come. I got news for y'all. The end of the world's going to come, right? God said it is, and it is. But it's the pride, it's the it's the original sin that says we can just put this off far enough where it never even happens. If we can just get the world population down to an earth-carrying capacity, then the, the world will never implode. It's humanism, it's pride in its purest form that we as a creation can stop the judgment that comes from the creator that's coming upon this earth. I say all that to say this. Styles is coming to share about Revelation, but the reason why we start with those current events is because we need to be reminded, number one, that we're not to be of fear, but number two, that listen, time is short, and God's going to do something, amen? You guys welcome my brother. He's going to do a great job. Thanks. Hey, everybody. You know, number eight, dependency burden. That reminded me of Nazi Germany. Because the first of the mass murders began with the, those that were a burden on society, the uh, you know, mentally and physically disabled. 
I mean, the spirit of Nazism is alive and well, and, and it's always existed because it's coming from the enemy. Okay, my objective tonight is to try to set us up for what kind of book Revelation is because it's a kind of a departure from the rest of Scripture in some ways, but also transport us to late first century, to what these churches were experiencing, uh, these churches that were actually receiving these letters or uh, possibly singular letter from John. Um, before I do that, you can open in your Bible app or in your Bibles to Revelation 1. We'll read a little bit to kind of set the scene. I did want to talk about John before we get into it. In John 21, the, the last chapter in John, it's where uh, Jesus and Peter reconcile after the betrayal. And then, uh, you know, they're si sitting around the fire having fish, and then in verse, let's start in verse 18. Most, assur most assuredly, this is Jesus speaking, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. Uh, many think that is speaking of how Peter would die eventually um, hanging on a cross upside down. The uh, story there is that they were just going to crucify him, but he said, I'm not worthy to be killed in the same way as my Savior, so turn the cross upside down. But this he spoke signifying of what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, which John, that's how John referred to himself, following who also had leaned on his chest at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, uh, nosy Peter, seeing him said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? So Peter's like, you just told me how I'm gonna die. What about this guy, John? And Jesus has a, an interesting response. He said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? So there's a couple of options here we can look at uh, by Jesus's words. Obviously, John is not still roaming the earth somewhere in the Isle of Patmos as some crazy super old man. It could be that what Jesus meant is that John will be the one that receives this revelation where he will see me coming back, the second coming, through the images and the visions in Revelation. Could be that. It could be the other option is just Jesus was just teaching Peter a lesson. He and what happens to him doesn't matter. You and I just had a moment, and that's what matters here. So you can't worry about everybody else, worry about yourself, and uh, you know, keep in good relationship with me. So that is just a picture of at the end of John. Some people struggle with that, thinking that is really weird what Jesus said there. Most likely it's just a little object lesson, but it also could be revealing of John the Revelator is gonna see this vision at some point. Okay, into Revelation chapter one. I was thinking of giving a compliment to Andrew, <laughs> but that would not be a good brother of me. And this is digitally recorded, so it would, he could listen to it forever. Okay, Revelation 1, let's, just, let's read through it, and then we'll kind of set the stage. In a couple weeks, we're going to look at the actual letters uh, or the churches that this letter was intended for um, and dig into those cities and locations a little more. Right now, uh, we'll take a kind of 50,000-foot view. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God 
and to the testimony of Jesus and to all things uh, that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy, key word there, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. So that's John uh, addressing the seven churches in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from his sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, and they also who, who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Jesus speaking now, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion, now speaking directly to the church, in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Do you remember where else we've seen that? Andrew talked about it a couple weeks ago. Another prophet, Ezekiel, saying, I am the uh, Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass and as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Uh, that's some imagery there of the first uh, encounter Peter actually had with Jesus on the boat. After they pulled in the fish, Peter fell on his knees, not as dead, but fell on his knees. Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Jesus said, do not be afraid. You'll be a fisher of men. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the seven angels of the churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. End of chapter one. We will talk about those sevens, not tonight, but uh, some next week and, and, and the week after that as we lead into chapter two that starts the churches. Literary genre. When we approach scripture, it's important to know what genre the book was written in. Um, for example, when you approach Job or Psalms or Song of Solomon, it's important to know that it's poetry. But even more than that, it's important to know that it's Hebrew poetry, which has different rules and techniques in place uh, apart from the poetry that we grew up with. Uh, when we know that about a literary genre going into it, it can help us unlock the original intent. Uh, when you approach scripture, you should always try to find the original meaning that the writer was trying to convey and how the original audience understood it. That's very important with certain words in scripture. Words have changed their meaning over history. And so we need to know how first century or uh, even get into BC with the Old Testament, how they understood 
certain words. Revelation is a letter of apocalyptic prophecy. That is three literary genres in one book. That's a mouthful. It's a letter, or perhaps more accurately, letters. We're not quite sure there. There were seven churches. They were all going to get a letter. Did they get one letter passed around, or did they all get seven letters, each letter? So it's a letter because it was written to a specific audience with a formal greeting and a benediction. Uh, the, we read the greeting. Benediction is in uh, chapter 22. So the, the, the letter in the first century with all the other letters from Paul or John or Jude, they would be written, and then he, you, they'd find a courier. For Paul, sometimes it was Timothy or some other person that they were traveling with to take that letter to a church, the church would read it, and then it would travel to all the other churches in the region and then maybe go beyond to another region. It is apocalyptic because it reveals hidden things yet to come using symbols, images, and visions. There are other apocalyptic uh, sections of Scripture. Daniel has some with some of the images that we see there. We even see some in um, Exodus with uh, Joseph interpreting the dreams of the Pharaoh. Uh, Zechariah is a big apocalyptic book. Uh, Ezekiel, which Andrew talked about, a lot of apocalyptic literature there. And then obviously Revelation, tons of symbols and images. Revelation pulls back the curtain on end times event, end time events while still concealing the precise meaning. That is classic apocalyptic literature. It's also a prophetic book because God delivers this apocalyptic message through a human agent, in this case, John. In fact, John himself, as we read, calls his own book a prophecy. So it's a letter of apocalyptic prophecy. One last comment on the nature of the book comes from chapter 1, verse 19. And this is where Jesus told John to write the things which he had seen. And that's kind of the vision that he had seen of Jesus here. And then the things which are, that's the seven churches section of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. And then the things which are to come. That's really the rest of Revelation from chapter 4 on into the end of the book in chapter 22. All right. Interpretive views. There are four interpretive views of Revelation. They fall into four basic categories. The first is historicist. The second is preterist, which sounds like some criminal. The third is futurist, and the fourth is idealist. The historicist views the symbolism of Revelation as the unfolding of successive periods of human and more specifically church history, starting right here with the seven churches. But after that, they'll kind of see, okay, we've, we've moved past the first century and now let's go through, through the centuries of, the, of church history. The preterist sees events unfolding in John's present day. This view relies on an early writing day, a writing date, which we'll touch on in a, in a minute. The futurist believes most of the imagery describes events that will take place near the end of human history. And then the idealist uh, relies on the symbolism being strictly symbolic for spiritual truths that the church and individuals can grow and learn from. All right. The Assemblies of God, which is our denomination that we're a part of, supports and interprets a futurist view of revelation primarily. And you'll also hear the term dispensationalism that can be coupled with that futurist, and Andrew will talk about that a lot more. I say primarily because it is possible to reconcile the preterist, idealist, and futurist views in many passages. In fact, that interpretation would be consistent with much of biblical prophecy, in biblical prophecy, there is often an element of now and not yet, or now and yet to come. A single prophecy with dual fulfillment, if you will. For example, the kingdom of God. 
Let's look at that just for a moment. You don't have to go there if you don't want to, but Luke, I'm going to start in chapter 17. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. It's not something that you're going to say, oh, there it is, found it. Nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. So Jesus' words here indicate that the kingdom of God is here now. Then Luke 19 in verse 11, now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a faraway country to receive himself a kingdom and to return. So this is the kingdom is not here yet. Jesus, Jesus responding in kind of two different ways. The kingdom is here. It is within us. It is growing. Uh, it is moving spiritually throughout the world. But also the kingdom is not here yet as far as the, I guess you could say, the materialization, the physical kingdom that would come with the second coming. So that's a kind of a dual fulfillment that we can see uh, in as we read in Revelation. So Revelation could have spoken directly to the events of John's day while also certainly foretelling of end time events. In other words, the message would have resonated with the seven churches. There are other views related to the timing of the rapture and the millennium and the second coming, which Andrew will cover. Uh, each of the, these views have their own kind of uh, thoughts uh, ab about the timing of those events. And even within those views, there's dispute or uh, different opinions about the timing of those events. Okay, the author and the date. The writer of Revelation is John the Beloved. This is the same John that wrote the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. The same John that accepted Mary as his mother uh, at the cross. Remember, Jesus looked at John, behold your mother, looked at his mom, behold your son. Uh, he was just making sure that his mom was looked out for and cared for. The writer is an easy one here. The date of writing, on the other hand, is a little more contentious. Uh, not very, but a little more. There's two dates that are put forward. Early around the 60s, uh, the, the late 60s, and then a late date around the mid-90s. The early date found support in the 19th and 20th centuries from those that identified Emperor Nero, the Roman Emperor Nero, with the beast of Revelation. They did some numerical work and found that the Roman numerical equivalent of Nero's name was 666. So they said, oh, that's it. He's, he's the beast of Revelation. Uh, additionally, Nero persecuted the Jews during that period. Uh, in fact, um, it's supposed that Nero lit Rome on fire just for the purpose of blaming the Jews. And then later that culminated into the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. The later date holds the most widespread support. In, in fact, one reason is what I just mentioned is you don't read uh, anything in Revelation about the temple. Only one temple, and that's in the heavenly city. So it seems like the temple is gone at this time in the later date, around 95 AD. This would have been during Emperor Domitian's reign. The historical setting and background we see from the letters to the churches make a later date more likely. Beyond that, the events of Revelation are global in scale. And if Nero is the central figure, then your interpretation has to be localized. It means everything's happening in this little region, this kind of Roman Empire, large though it may be, not global. The later date also gets support from a story shared by uh, historians of the day Domitian, uh, uh, historians of the day, one is named uh, Tertullian, and it's a story of Domitian ordering John the Beloved's death. He sentenced him to be boiled alive in oil. Uh, he survived, John survived this um, because Jesus had plans. Uh, but as a consequence, they realized they just weren't going to be able to kill John. So as a consequence, they banished him 
uh, for I think it was five years to an isle of Patmos, this deserted area. And John, we see, is saying, I'm at Patmos. This is where I received my vision. So that also supports the later date. And then while uh, kind of talking about the culture and the historical setting, while tribulation and persecution are consistent themes throughout Revelation, only two letters to the churches, Smyrna and Thyatira, emphasize persecution as a present reality for those churches. Furthermore, there was no direct mention of Roman persecution as an official policy against the churches or against Christians. Uh, this, once again, supports the later date under Domitian's rule, because if Nero had kind of an official policy to not only persecute uh, Jews, but persecute Christians, then um, it seems odd it wouldn't be mentioned here in Revelation if it was an early writing. History records no official persecution attributed to Domitian and instead treats him as a fair ruler, even though he ordered John to be boiled in oil. But even though persecution of, church, of the church wasn't an official policy of Rome, it still did exist locally. For the seven churches, so let's try to put ourselves in one of these churches, get there in um, first century Asia. For the seven churches located in what is modern-day Turkey, the, the coastal or western third, that meant, this, this localized persecution meant ostracism and rejection from society if they didn't participate in cultural norms such as emperor worship. The spiritual climate in the empire around this time was trending toward imperial cult worship. Emperor worship was rejected in the early days of the empire by the people and the leaders alike. However, this all changed during Octavius's reign. Octavius, also called Octavian, then was called Augustus when he ascended to power. Augustus designated his great uncle, Julius Caesar, a god. The same designation was given to Augustus upon his death in uh, 14 AD when Tiberius began to rule. Uh, so Tiberius would have been the emperor when Jesus walked the earth. Make no mistake about it. It is no coincidence that the enemy began to assert his influence over wicked men to elevate other men to God status around the same time that Jesus was born. He knew the story, and he knew that there was, that God was going to wrap on flesh and walk among men. So if he could start convincing everybody else that this God thing was kind of a normal thing, and there were gods among us, uh, then he's winning. It took only a few generations from this emperor worship to progress from worshiping the dead to worshiping the living in Domitian's day. In fact, it had become so popular that the city started bidding and competing for the right to build temples dedicated to emperors. These cities were known as temple wardens. And three of the seven churches, uh, not churches, but three of the seven cities that housed the seven churches were temple wardens, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks, Ephesus, Pergamum, and Smyrna. There was enormous pressure on the churches to conform to this imperial cult worship. If you refused, you likely lost your right to work and participate in society or general commerce. Okay, here's a great example of where the futurist view and the preterist view coalesce. This is real to that church when they're reading that if you do not accept the mark on your hand or on your forehead, you cannot buy or sell anything. Obviously, today we understand that to be some kind of uh, digital implant. They in their day might have thought they were just branded uh, on their hand or forehead, which obviously is very easy to see. Not that it could be scanned, but this was relevant to them. Overall, the prevailing theme surrounding these seven churches is cultural peer pressure. 
pressure from external forces and internal forces like the Nicolaitans. We see them mentioned a couple times in Revelation. The Nicolaitans uh, were the internal forces with false teachers, but you also had the external forces that were pressuring the church to assimilate to, or at the very least, tolerate the pagan practices of their neighbors. And here's what we have to capture as I'll end here in two weeks when we talk about the churches. The consistent exhortation from Jesus to the churches was for them to move counter-culturally against that peer pressure. And we have the same call today. Move counter-culturally. Do not assimilate. Be separated, set apart for God's purpose. There should be something different about us, and it should be noticeable, and it should be obvious. Thanks, y'all. All right, what's passing around right now is, has been passed around strategically at the end. We'll put it up on the screen. This is our study guide for Pastor's Prophecy Hour for the book of Revelation. Make ready. Let me ask you while the papers are going out. I got plenty up here too, so just pass them out. Let everybody take one, and you guys, I'll tell you what to do with it in a few moments. Here we go. You know, I've, I've, I've often said that, I hate to use this example, but uh, predestination and free will. The assemblies of God, we believe that we have a choice to make in order to receive Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, of course. Predestination in its purest form says that God knows you really don't have any control over the decision. Um, God has already predetermined that you're going to be the elect. In other words, God loves those that are going to be saved. He already knows who those are going to be. And those that are not going to be, there's no hope for them in the process. Now, the reason why I share that is because I believe a more um, simple, maybe, or cleaner definition of predestination I believe that God is sovereign and everything that happens he knows is going to happen so if I'm okay saying that it was predestined for me to be here teaching you tonight and you to be here learning and listening I'm okay with saying that because I believe that God knows the end from the beginning he stands outside of space and time I also believe that I have a decision to make on whether or not I'm going to teach tonight right now, the reason why I say that is because a lot of prophecy and a lot of the stuff we're going to go through, there's layers and layers of stuff. Layers, as you can see. You see layers up there? There's some layers of stuff up there. Now you've got the piece of paper and you've got layers, and I want you to keep this with you. Fold it, put it in your Bible. I'll have a few extra every week if you need it. Uh, but the point is this. We're going to walk through this next week. I'm going to dig into uh, dispensationalism and covenant theology and some of those other things uh, to try to at least give a little bit of standpoint or a stance on why we're approaching it the way we're approaching it. Why does the assemblies of God stand where they stand? But let me ask you this. He, he mentioned, Stiles mentioned, which by the way, I feel, and you, you may, I may, I may be wrong. I feel that whatever Styles was going to say for the sake of the congregants here tonight, you need to say it. <laughs> Do you feel the way I feel? <laughs> say it. All right. <laughs> Cut my mic. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'll, I'll say this just from my personal perspective. I went to the same Bible college that Andrew did. So when you're in Bible college, you have chapel every day and you have a, a new preacher come through every day in chapel, and it's awesome. And you, you have like 50 Assemblies of God churches right around your Bible college that you can try out, and, and you do. I say all that to say that I have seen a lot of pastors over my years and during Bible college and after that, and uh, even though he's my brother, we have a really good pastor here that, that cares, is dedicated, that has been through... Um, challenges and consistently just follows the Lord and uh, the other thing I'll say is in Hebrews the Bible says that pastors 
are the overseer of our souls. So if you want your soul to be oversaw well, <laughs> then be kind to your pastor because he's kind to us. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to hug you after this. He regrets it already. He's hugged me one time. And that was the first time he saw me after I had COVID. And I was sitting right there and he came over and hugged me real hard. And I was like, <laughs> it was so awesome. Anyway, thank you seriously, Styles, for that. I, I, I do appreciate it. That they've done the numbers thing that he mentioned about Nero to many different people over history. There was a president a few years ago they did it on as well. Anyway, the point is, why do you think the book of Revelation has this the apocalyptic nature of hiding the true, true, true meaning instead of just say what it is and saying things like dragon and sea and beast and image of the beast. And it says all of these things that we can correlate and we can connect the dots and we can do it. Why doesn't it just say that this is the person, this is the year, this is the time, this is the place? Well, I think it doesn't say that for the same reason that you read through the Gospels and you never once read a description physically of what Jesus looked like when he was here upon the earth. You read about his hair being white as wool and a sword coming from his mouth, but you never once read Jesus was stocky or Jesus was rugged or Jesus had long brown hair. You don't read and, and a brown beard and, and what, you know, you don't read that. Now, we have inferred our own understanding, and, and if you go into many European churches, there's a, there's a pasty white Jesus on the wall. It is. If you go to the Ethiopian Christian churches that we talked about recently, there is a black Jesus on the wall. And if you go into the Middle East and find those Christian churches, and, and you'll find a Middle Eastern Jesus. Can I tell you a couple of things? Number one, I think he's more black than he was white because of where he's from. But at the end of the day, can I say something? Don't matter. He wasn't created in your image. He is the creator. Amen? And so, can I tell you, I think Revelation hides things enough that if it said in 2029, the beast will arise from this country and their name will be XYZ, then can I tell you the temptation for many believers and many Christians is let's just party till that happens. Why, why would I get my life right? Let's just wait till that happens, right? That's the temptation. Not for me, but some of you. <laughs> be nice, Dal said, you gotta be nice. But I, but I think there's a lot of depth there. The reason why we read through these incredible things and images and, and symbolism, yes, it's all true. It all points to something. And on the other side, we can look back and say, that's what that was, right? Now, let me give you, um, it's also the same reason that we talked about why, G, why uh, God took Moses' body and buried it in a secret place. So the children of Israel didn't create an idol out of it. Remember that? Okay, on your sheet of paper, do you see the little squiggly thing at the legs of the image of Daniel, and it goes all the way around. That's a snake. You see the snake? It says Satan in heavenly places. So that's when he was the accuser of the brethren and Job, and then he is present in those places. Now, we see there Satan cast down in Revelation 12, 9 on the right, and then the snake goes down. See it? goes down and it's bound in the pit at the very bottom and it goes back up and released for a time and it comes down a lake of fire. So here's where you want to be over the snake. The entire time, if you can position yourself over the snake, then you'll be in a good spot. Make sense? Now, as we navigate this, you'll see there's there's Daniel, there's Ezekiel, there's Revelation. Most of what we see in Revelation has its references, has its explanation, has its pointings to these other apocalyptic literature, Zechariah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And we're going to walk through all of those kinds of things. Without getting into dispensationalism too much tonight, 
we are considered to be in a dispensation of grace. The church age, which you can see right there, we have the Gentiles saved and Israel blinded. We have the church age, present age, which is where we are right now. Now, take this home with you. Look at it. Study it. Enjoy it. We're going to walk through it one thing at a time. The seals, the trumpets, all the stuff. And then what I'd like to do is to kind of paint a picture of how much time it's going to take to get us from the beginning to the end. And what is it going to be like for you as a believer? Now, I believe, and the Assemblies of God believes, that we are pre-trib. And that means that before the wrath, before the tribulation comes, we will be caught up in an event called the rapture, which is right there. It's right there on that screen. I know I need a laser. I'm going to try to order. me. I had one. I need to get me another laser pointer. Anyhow, it's going to be a lot of fun. Can I tell you this much? I'm excited about this next part of the journey with you. We're going to go through Revelation. It's going to be an awesome time. I'll keep looking at current events. If you find things, send them to me. And um, I almost said there's nothing too weird, but there are, th there are things too weird. But, you know, just send them to me. I'll filter them out. <laughs> All right. Let me pray for you. Thank you guys for being here. Lord Jesus, give us a great rest of the week. May tonight serve its purpose as a time of refreshing. And uh, Lord, that we may attack the rest of this week full of faith, full of the power of the Holy Ghost. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave a five-star rating and review. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe to Pastor's Prophecy Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you'd like to hear more from Greater Life Church, including our Sunday morning services, go to our website, greaterlife.church.